welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Welcome, everyone, to uh, this week's version of Fracture Line. We're a little short-handed today. I th- I think Dr. Crisco is still uh, skiing powder in Japan. Is that true, or is he back? Do you know? That oh, he's is still true. Gone. I think wow. he's still. He sent some photos, and he, he may never um, come back. Well, that's probably true, um, or that's certainly on the list of possibilities. But based on the photos, he was not kidding when he said it was like waist deep powder, yeah. etc. Oh, deeper. Yeah. Yeah. We call that it's... snorkel powder. You have to have a snorkel on so you can breathe. Sometimes when it, the shots come over your head, it's pretty impressive. I've had to. The pleasure of doing that on a couple of weekends. Yeah, I feel really bad for him. Sarah, why don't you introduce our guest today? Okay. Dr. Zolst below, we're excited to have you. Thank you so much. I'm not sure that I even say your name correctly. So I'm going to turn the mic to you and and you can tell us about yourself and your practice and things that that our listeners may not already know. All right. Thanks very much, Sarah and uh, Dr. White. I'm, I'm uh, Joel Bologa. I'm a trauma surgeon. I'm uh, never fussed about if you can't pronounce my name because, as you hear, I'm struggling with English a lot. I just use English for, for work. I'm a Hungarian uh, and uh, uh, did uh, my university and basic trauma training at uh, University of Szeged, Hungary. And I did um, a PhD parallel with my uh, surgical training and did uh, rotations in Denver, Colorado, in, in Denver Health with Gene Moore. And I did, uh, that was during my residency, and I did a fellowship in uh, uh, Memorial Hermann University of Texas at Houston. And, and then I've done a fellowship in Liverpool Hospital, uh, University of New South Wales, Sydney, Australia. And then I started my practice in uh, Saget, Hungary, when New South Wales, the state of New South Wales in Australia approached me to lead uh, the busiest uh, trauma center in uh, in the state and I gave it a go and that was pretty much 18 years ago and since that I'm leading the John Hunter Hospital trauma service and I'm a professor of surgery at University of Newcastle and I'm a trauma surgeon in the uh, central European sense of it. So basically, uh, we train to manage anything what injured without boundaries. But my current practice is primarily orthopedic trauma. And within orthopedic trauma and uh, late complications of fractures, I kind of deal with everything, including chest wall. What a truly diverse training experience you had in terms of locations. That's, that's impressive. Wow, that's a very prolific training resume. It's really impressive. So you're currently at, at Newcastle, and you've been there for quite some time. Correct, 18 years. 18 years. And when did you start fixing rib fractures? And tell us a little bit about how you got started. I'm going to hop in on your question first, just in case anyone doesn't know where Newcastle is. You're just north of Sydney, correct? I'm trying to place for people where you're located. Yeah, I'm 100 miles north of Sydney. Now tell us more about your your SSRF, you know, your toe dipping into that. Well, I started uh, my first rib stabilization cases were about 25 years ago when, and those were primarily related to situations when we did the implant trauma thoracotomy. 
And on the way, way out, you know, there were ribs all over the place. And uh, I just uh, didn't feel like to leave them with a few stitches. And we were very happy to use 3.5 reconstruction plates on them and uh, they healed fine. And that was virtually a couple of cases a year during um, maybe during a decade. And after that kind of expanded as people were more familiar that actually make a cut on the chest to stabilize it. But I'm curious about the early experience using the, the 3.5 millimeter. I'm assuming those were stainless steel uh, recon plates. Did you attach those to the ribs with screws or did you use wire surclage to hold those in place? And secondary question, did you find it necessary to remove those plates over time after the patient healed or did you leave them in? A very good question. I used exclusively screws and uh, as you can imagine that time was uh, before or just the start of having uh, logged uh, plates. So those were standard 3.5 compression screws and I didn't use any wires. Uh, Sometimes used an additional PDS or Vicro stitch around them. But as far as I remember, all those cases were relatively young patients and with good quality bone. So I managed to get by with the bicortical uh, standard screws and didn't have major problems with, with the hardware irritation. Uh, that could have been due to the fact that some of these patients were from the group which wasn't very keen or particularly religious about follow-up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're familiar with those patients. (laughs) Well, I just know from Dr. Mayberry and Dr. Long and some of the uh, other veterans of early fixation in in our neck of the woods describe removing some of those early plates. They They were stiff. They had a high profile, and you could oftentimes feel them, and patients oftentimes came back and asked for plate removal, but it's just an interesting experience. I've never utilized those plates in the chest. Now, how did you imagine the first time when you saw someone that, you know, you thought, I could do this surgery? You know, it clearly was cutting edge. Obviously, you know, not even necessarily the plates that would normally go in in that part of the body. And, you know, what was that moment of creativity like? Or had you read a case report from, you know, someone else? I'm just kind of curious how that came to fruition. I didn't, I didn't think that was something particularly innovative or, or unique. To me, fixing a rib was always uh, very, very simple and forgiving. I must say that during that time was well before safe working boards. And uh, when you happen to have this in, in uh, after 72 hours of continuous work and operating, your, your mind uh, goes to a relatively more creative phase where where you can come up with, with new things and uh, you don't see any problems with it. And actually, that was it. Uh, and uh, the alternatives when somebody had a smashed chest without seat belt and the ribs were lying this, uh, anything could bring yeah. them to do this would make a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. And at some point, I'm sure you told yourself, well, what do, you, what do we have to lose? The patient's going to do extremely poorly if we don't do something. And so exactly. if you're confident you can do that with, with reasonably low risk, then why not? I just think it's amazing that those those cases, it must have been a really interesting time. What was it, What was your mindset? Yeah, the alternative was that uh, leave a, a big uh, spike of a rib in the lung or going into the lung or resect the whole quarter of the chest wall to make sure that the rib gonna be away from the 
uh, lung and I'm able to close safely. So compared to that, any of to any of those popping on a few flexible or relatively flexible reconstruction plate made a good sense. Put on your future prediction hat and tell us how will rib fracture repair be different 10 years from now than it is now? We'll be using a different type of product, a different approach. Will we be using absorbable? I'm just giving you some examples to play with, but what do you think? Well, first of all, I hope uh, the pendulum going to settle for indications a little bit uh, better. So uh, leading by our society, I hope that we will know much better uh, which patient group are going to benefit from this uh, approach. I think the less invasive uh, techniques and maybe intrathoracic techniques are going to improve further. And uh, especially intrathoracics probably going to be absorbable or resorbable plates. And I don't think too much to improve in my uh, standards fixing a rib because our current techniques are pretty good. Anything can make it less invasive is uh, make sense. And uh, just repeat myself, indication and picking the right patient. There are so many variables what we try to work out who really benefit from this apart from creating a nicer x-ray. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. If somebody were to ask me that same question, I would I think I would steal your answer from you. I think we'll, we'll have a better handle on matching patients with the appropriate operation, the appropriate whether or not it is an operation or not an operation, and then secondarily, if they are surgical candidates, I think we'll do a better job of matching the procedure with their pathology. We have a ways to go to refine that. I think we do a pretty good job of identifying those patients currently who benefit from an operation, but I don't think we're as specific as we should be. I think we probably operate on people that don't need it uh, and might do okay without it. And I think we need to do, we, we need to refine our ability to do, the, to match patients with the right therapy. So I agree with you 100%. Well, I would add one other opinion that, that I've heard from one of the smartest people I know. So I'm only, you know, kind of parroting what, what he would say, but I had the opportunity to, to kind of have a conversation similar to this with Dr. Um, Bob Axarani. And this was back in 2020. And I only remember it because it was right after the pandemic hit and we were doing a Zoom call. And he was talking about the fact that data analytics are really the future. From his perspective, what will change? Because he said, you know, you may have a patient who has a single rib that's broken, but for that person who's really active or, you know, has a certain lifestyle or something like that, if it's if it's particularly frustrating for that person, you know, maybe the, the data analytics will demonstrate to us that, yes, you should move forward and, you know, do this case. Or maybe you'll have someone that has significant pathology, but their current status just doesn't necessarily match with what data analysis would say. And maybe we would decide not to plate that person, you know. And so it's kind of an interesting perspective to say that it may lead to more cases or less cases, but either way... Better matching. You know, yes, better matching and decide that we're identifying the right patients. And I'm using yeah. the proverbial we, like, <laughs> as though this was something I actually do. But hopefully where the trends of the industry go, rather than this idea that, you know, I have a hammer, I have a nail, you know, I just solved that problem, you know, so it'll be interesting. Now, I know on the other side, when you're not in the hospital, you do some pretty amazing adventure items. You were describing for me about the biking you were doing in Amsterdam. I think you called it 
ice biking or snow cycling or something like that. I can't remember. <laughs> well, it wasn't planned like that, Sarah. <laughs> it just looked really cold. <laughs> well, it, well, first of all, uh, I'm not a, not a cyclist. I, I do a bit of cycling just for fun or commute, so don't hold me on to that. But uh, yeah, I had to go to Amsterdam. And uh, my middle son lives in Europe, and uh, that was a good time to catch up. And so I told him to come over to Amsterdam, and I go there and uh, spend a few more days. And uh, he asked me, okay, what do you want to do? I don't like too much cities and hang out just in a city. I said, no, 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 we go for a bike trip. And luckily, he's crazier than me, so... Within half an hour, he come up with a plan. It was uh, something like a 400-mile uh, loop uh, in northern uh, Holland. But the problem is that was uh, middle of December. And basically, uh, sub-zero Celsius temperature. And it happened to be horrible fog and thick ice on the roads. So for us to cover 60 miles or something like that, took the whole day and uh, several falls in baby steps on the ice. So that was a kind of uh, adventure. So not the usual thing what people do, imagine a cycling tip uh, among the tulips <laughs> and the canals in Netherlands. Yes, yes, not exactly what people think of when they think of biking through Holland, of, you know, avoiding snow and ice patches. But I have to disagree with your perspective. If you say you're not a cyclist, but then you can cycle 60 miles a day, I would say by most people's standards, you are a cyclist. That's pretty official. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I think that was a one-off. Uh, my son actually asked me just the beginning of the year that are you planning any more cycling trip? And, uh, and I said, <laughs> oh, well, uh, maybe in May, but not necessarily again at that time. Yes. Yes, that sounds like a much better time to be cycling. That is for sure. Well, that's very exciting. When you are home, do you cycle much? I know right now you mentioned it's pretty warm. It's what, 31 degrees Celsius, you said? Yeah. Today? Or you anticipate the high? That's pretty warm for cycling. Yeah, I do cycling just for cross-training. So I primarily prefer running and uh, I tend to cycle to work one day a week and to avoid traffic cars and go only on cycle routes. That's actually something like uh, just over a 20 mile uh, ride. And I just can't afford to have it uh, every day in terms of time, 20 miles, two ways. So I do that just once, uh, once a week. That sounds very enjoyable in warm weather. It's quite cold here still, and I would love to be out riding my bike outside, so I'm envious, but... I was asking Dr. Below if we're going to see him in Charlotte. Is he going to come see us? No, unfortunately not, because I just have too many trips to do, and I have to go uh, early March to the Western Trauma Association in Lake Louise, and shortly after to the European Trauma Society. And these were kind of logged in in my calendar uh, well a year ahead. So I have to give a miss to Charlotte. But I re I'm reading the updates about it. It sounds like a fun meeting going to be. I think it will be. I think it'll be pretty good. And I hope you have a good time. I know we have a handful of CUS members that are headed to that Western meeting. Yeah, they've been getting a lot of snow. So it should be good. All right, Sarah, do you have any updates for us? Well, I sure do. Um, I'm going to quickly give you a, a handful of things to, to make sure that everybody has on their calendar. 
So we have case review on Wednesday, February 22nd at 7 a.m. Mountain Time. So I hope that people have that one on their calendar. We still have one presentation space available for that day. So if you have a case, um, it doesn't need to be dramatic or, you know, some heroic thing. I, we love, you know, just plain bread and butter cases that everybody can learn from. And it could be operative or non-operative. I know we've had cases before where people have brought them and wanted to know, if, you know, what the group thought about their decision not to operate. So any and all suggestions you have there would be, or, or cases that you want to put forward would be fantastic. I also wanted to point out that March 15th is the deadline for posters, cine session videos, and frankenplating submissions. And the frankenplating can be something you're going to present from the podium, or it can be a video, whatever your flavor is. So it all of those things culminate by March 15th. We need to have all the final submissions. The links to all the submission opportunities are on the uh, Summit webpage. So be sure to check those out and we'll look forward to, to seeing them. We have some really great submissions so far. So I think those sessions in particular are going to be terrific. It's a little ironic you just mentioned frankenplating because Dr. Bill DeVoe just put a picture on Slack of a pretty elaborate sternal reconstruction and he actually suggested that maybe this is this what you guys consider frankenplating? I told him not to show any more images. Hang on to those because <laughs> we're going to want to see those from the podium. So I'm glad you remind everybody. So March 15th, that's the not dead date for submitting for that session. That is the drop dead date. Now you can submit earlier if you want. If you submit earlier, we'll review it and either prove it or not sooner, but we will not accept anything after March 15th. So if you want to submit something today, you know, you could tell Dr. Dr. DeVoe today is his day to uh, to submit those. Then uh, the program committee will go ahead and look at those. So I think it'll be a highlight. I think I mentioned in an email, but have not, I don't know if I've actually said it on Fracture Line, but the rooms are selling out rapidly and you're going to want to be in the hotel. One, just for convenience sake you know it's always nicer to be in the facility where the meeting is being held but two it's just a beautiful property so if you are thinking that you're headed to Charlotte go ahead and book your hotel room even if you don't have time to book your flight and your you know book your registration and all of those things up front just just get your hotel room booked because they are running out rapidly and I don't want to have anybody miss out. So certainly there are other places nearby and I'm happy to direct people to some of the other sister properties that we looked at that were right around that same area, but nothing like being on site. I will say I was chatting with their catering gal about their you know food needs and she was talking about how they would be placing orders and when that would come up. And she asked me, now, does your group like to go to the bar afterwards? Should we stock up? And I coached her that in fact, yes, this is a heavy networking meeting. So be sure that you, uh, you stock up. So for anyone that was worried or curious, don't worry, we've got that covered. So all is well there. But do you want to final stitch it? Yeah, I'll go. I had the pleasure of going to Boston this week and spend a little time with the trauma team at Boston Medical Center, where they're very interested in establishing a rib fracture program. And it was very gratifying to see. Uh, Boston has lagged behind many parts of the U.S. In, in their approach to surgical repair of chest wall trauma. And it's good to see them joining the crusade. So congratulations. That's Dr. Noelle Salant and, and her team. So that's my final stitch. Very cool. Dr. Bello, it's your turn. I think the most exciting thing what I'm doing apart from doing trauma uh, surgery is biodiversity 
restoration. So we hear a lot about these days uh, sustainability and protection of our resources. And what I decided to do is I just don't trust what other people are going to do with my efforts. So, so, for example, if I do uh, collecting my garbage uh, selectively and uh, recycling, I'm not the one who recycling. Somebody else has to do that. And I have a bad feeling that some of those things are still end up in the ocean. So I try to take, and, and many other things like, I'm not convinced at the moment that uh, for overall, for the world, it's better to have a battery-operated car than a, a low-consumption gasoline-running uh, car. I just don't know. And I, but I don't know. I know that economic growth and and greed is behind those two. And so I basically I started to do things on my own, which means that I'm acquiring a marginal abused land, different parts of the world, and basically destock it, stop agriculture and human activity on that, and start rewilding it back to nature. So based on this, let's say if I have somewhere uh, a thousand uh, acres of patch, that can basically counteract 50 gas gobbling Americans. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, the worst ones. <laughs> so, sure. so basically, uh, that's, that's what I'm up to. And uh, I enjoy very much and uh, I would really recommend uh, you guys and the society to, to take this up. And whether it's that only your one third of your backyard or a hobby farm or whatever, uh, try to revive and give it back to the natural ecosystem what you used to have there. And this is, I think, what we citizens can do. And especially where in the United States of America, where so much of the land is in public hand, this is where you can actually influence the, the government and policies too, uh, so much. So anyway, that's what I'm up to. And I have a, we are managing a, or nature managing a piece of land for us in Hungary with my middle son. And on this little hundred acres, we uh, observed during the last two years something like 215 bird species. And in Australia, you're providing uh, refuge and habitat, some rare kangaroo and uh, wallaby species. So it's quite fun. And, you know, no matter how small, you can say that's your own reserve and no other people interferes with that. And in Australia, we have the system that you can set these up for na nature reserves for perpetuity. So basically, in in my place, you cannot remove even a, a hollow log, and you can't make wow. a new track, you can't build a, a new fence, you can't build a house on it, and this is attached to the title, so this is not just during my limited lifespan and my crazy hobby, it's going to stay like that. So if you have an opportunity, I think it's a fun thing to do. And this one definitely creates better air, better water, and refuge for flora and fauna, no matter what uh, other uh, forces or government wants to do. I think it's, it's a fun, fun thing to do. So if you can, have, you can promote it, it's a pretty good thing to contribute with. It's fascinating. 
That is very cool. You know, I know a lot of people and I don't know anybody that's doing that. So that's that's pretty cool. That makes you unique. So I will give my final stitch really quickly. I have mentioned on our podcast a, a number of times, or I regularly mention my family on the podcast and learned kind of about a new concept from a family friend this past week. And, you know, we were kind of talking about some of the struggles of life and, and some of the challenges that you face. And she was talking about, um, and she happens to be a social worker and, and she was saying, you know, in so many ways, life is, is a tug of war, right? You're pulling against someone or you're pulling against some issue that you're having and then they pull back and, you know, it's this, this back and forth concept. And she said, and sometimes it's time to just let go of the rope. And it, it sounds more simplistic than I think, you know, is easy to do. But I found myself this past week on certain issues thinking, just let go of the rope. This this is not worth tugging over, you know. And, and I think in some ways it has helped sort of lower the stress uh, in situations where I felt really anxious about something or something that I, I thought was really important. And kind of when I took a step back and just let go of the rope mentally and thought, this is just going to be what it is, then it gave me the ability to sort of walk away without feeling quite so much angst about things. So hopefully if any of our listeners are feeling that feeling, that they can use that uh, lesson as well. Thank you so much for being here. It, it was a delight to interview you on our podcast. Well, thanks so much.